0: reading this morning comes from Habakkuk 1, verse 1 through chapter 2, 1. That is page 737 in the Bible in the queue in front of you. And again, it's Habakkuk chapter 1. The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help, and you will not hear? Or cry to violence, and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity? And why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed, and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. Look among the nations, and see. Wonder and be astounded. For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. all their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. At kings they scoff, and at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on, guilty men whose own might is their God. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? (coughs) We shall not die, He gathers them in his dragnet, so he rejoices and is glad. Therefore he sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet, for by them he lives in luxury and his food is rich. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? I will take my stand at my watchpost and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to you and what I will answer concerning my complaints. This is the
1: end of the world. All right. Thank you, Susie. Boy, another cheery minor prophet here. A little destruction, a little uh, injustice, a little more uh, just what you guys needed on a cool October's Morning, huh? a little message of the minor prophets. Boy, we're we're in a different. If you if you just walked in and you're like, wow, what is this church talking about? We have been in the midst of a series on the minor prophets this fall, looking at these very neglected voices in Scripture that um, we can learn a lot from. This one, said several times, these are not the the minor lot prophets in terms of the minor leagues. Like we're in the major leagues. These guys have some incredibly powerful and profound messages to offer to us. And so the prophet Habakkuk is no exception. Uh, to put him in our timeline um, here, uh, he is serving in the earth right before Judah went into exile in Babylon, probably during the reign of King Jehoiakim, another corrupt and godless king, uh, right before uh, Judah is about to experience God's judgment. So things are kind of falling apart. Things are unraveling in the society from the top down. Habakkuk's society was filled with evil and injustice. And this man of God is utterly devastated, if you can't tell, by the situation around him. He's just looking around at the world and going evil and justice everywhere. Uh, and the worst part right, is that God doesn't seem to be doing Anything about it, right? He has a problem with God's management of the world. If God is in fact the sovereign king of the universe, why on earth is society? So, why is there all this evil and injustice swirling around him? Why are evil nations conquering other nations? Why all the violence? Why all the bloodshed? Why all the strife that we see? around us. Have you ever looked around at our world and wondered, God, what are you doing? <laughs> like, I mean, if you're in charge, if you are the manager of the world, why are there shootings in Lewiston? Why were so many people killed just out minding their own business, doing their own thing, right? Why were so many people killed in a brutal terrorist attack, right, in Israel just a few weeks ago, right? Why are there wars still raging? Why is there ethnic genocide? And why, why all the chaos that we see uh, around us. Uh, perhaps it's not just out there in the, the broader world, maybe the church itself. You look at it and you just wonder, what is going on with the church? I mean, uh, we're going through a period in our life and culture. Uh, many people are calling the great de-churching. Forty million Americans have left the church in the last 25 years years. And so that is absolutely, that, that's mind-blowing. I mean, that's more people than were saved in the First Great Awakening, Second Great Awakening, and all of Billy Graham's evangelistic crusades put together it, far and beyond. Uh, we're going through an unprecedented time in our history here in America. And so if you're wondering, what is going on with the church? Like, you, you'd be excused for wondering. Uh, but maybe the problem for you is a little bit more personal. You just look at your own life and your own situation and wonder, God, where are you in my life, in my situation, uh, where I'm at in the situations, you know, I don't know what it is, jobs or relationships or school or, or, or what the personal situation is, but we, we cry out often, don't we, like Habakkuk, God, where are you? Are you even listening? Do you hear what's going on down here in planet Earth? And one of the beautiful things about this particular prophet Instead of bringing a prophetic word to the northern kingdom of Israel or to the southern kingdom of Judah or to Assyria or to any of the other nations, Habakkuk just brings his complaint directly to God. He's like, God, I have a problem with the way you are running the world. And and maybe you're here this morning and you can identify. You just look at your own life and you're like, God, I've got a problem with the way you are running my life or the world or the place that I find Uh, myself in there. And so Habakkuk, of course, is in for a bit of a rude awakening because not only does God answer Habakkuk's complaint, not only is he going to answer his question, he's going to do it in a way Habakkuk was not anticipating, as God often will do, right? He throws Habakkuk a little bit of a curveball. In fact, the answer appears to be worse than the original problem. Have you ever been there? You prayed for something, and then something even worse happened, right? Sometimes in the life of the believer, that goes down. And so throughout the book, Habakkuk is wrestling with with God, what the heck are you doing in my life and in the world? I prayed for one thing, you gave me another thing, and now the problems are even worse. And he's just wondering, God, how is it that you are in fact sovereign over history? So my big idea for this morning, if I were to put uh, the message of Habakkuk in a nutshell in one sentence, uh, it would be this, trust that God is sovereign over history and your story. Trust that God is in fact against all the the evidence to the contrary, sovereign over history and our stories as well. Uh, As we're unpacking this big idea here, I want to look at at three things that I hope will help us wrestle with God's sovereignty over us. That's the big theme of the book, the sovereignty of God. Um, Habakkuk's lament, he's looking around saying, God, it doesn't appear that you're actually sovereign. We're going to look at the Lord's response. He really helps us to understand and put into context What is going on, the chaos that we see around us? Then finally, Habakkuk's prayer in the end. We get this beautiful, poetic response at the end, capturing Habakkuk's response to who God is and what he's like. And my aim for this morning's sermon is that in the chaos swirling around us and in our own lives, rather than driving us away from God, it would only deepen our faith and trust in the sovereignty of God. Of God, right? Chaos in our lives can can do two things, right? It can drive us away from God or it can drive us closer to him. I'm going to take the fact that you're here this morning as an invitation that you would like to go deeper into your relationship with God this morning. And so let's pray that God might be pleased to do that this morning. Father, we thank you for these minor prophets. We thank you for the fact that they're willing to go there, argue with you, complain to you, ask deep questions of you, God, and that you come and that you meet them in the midst of their confusion and their disillusionment and their... Disorientation and you address their doubts and their fears and, um, all of the questions that they have. God, would you this morning as we go through this ancient, uh, prophetic piece of literature, God, would it speak to our doubts, our questions, our fears, our disillusionment, our heartache, all of the ways, God, we just long for you to make all things new, make all things right. So would you come by the power of your spirit and speak through your people, through your word, and we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're, we're going to get started here with Habakkuk's lament. And we don't use the word lament much in our modern vocabulary, but it's something the people of God have used throughout their history. Lament, uh, if you're not familiar with the term, is the language of grief, heartache, sadness, suffering, Loss, right? To lament is something we do at a funeral, right? It's something that we we just grieve, right? Our hearts are broken about the brokenness in our own lives or the world or, or death or injustice or sadness or sorrow. And lament tries to capture that language, put it into poetry, put it into song, put it into prayers, and actually be able to do something with it, channel it. In our culture, you know, we're kind of like shiny, happy people. Like, everything's great all the time, and positivity, and we shy away from the darkness. We shy away from sadness, and sorrow, and grief. We don't want to go there, right? We don't want to experience those painful emotions, but God's people throughout the centuries have learned to embrace Uh, the sorrow in their lives, the brokenness in the world, and they found language to express it, and we need it. If we're going to be honest about our lives, if we're going to be honest about the world we live in, if we're going to be honest about the struggles that the people we love and know around us, we need this language of lament. It is so helpful for us. There are many examples in the Psalms, particularly, of people that are lamenting before God, crying out, bringing their heartache, bringing their brokenness, bringing their sorrow, bringing their sadness to God in very raw, unfiltered ways. If you are going through a season of struggle, you're wrestling with God, get into the Psalms. You'll find some companions for that journey, people that are wrestling with God. In prayer, there are whole books in the Bible like Lamentations that are just laments. That's all they do is just bring their sorrow and sadness to God. And that's a beautiful contribution, right, to the people of God. Habakkuk is lamenting the tragic state of Israel at this time, right? I already said from top to bottom there's violence, immorality, strife, destruction. It is a mess. There are two uh, beautiful descriptions of this, or maybe just poignant descriptions. They're kind of actually tragic descriptions. No, I said beautiful. Um, First one in verse four: the law is paralyzed, and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. Right? That's that's a pretty tragic state state of affairs to find yourself in. The worst part is that God doesn't seem to be doing anything. So we see, right, the Habakkuk's cry in verse two. Oh God, how long shall I cry for help and you not hear or cry out to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity and why do you idly look at wrong, destruction and violence are before me? Right, He's crying, God, what is happening? Right, Compare this, for instance, to Psalm 13, 1 through 2. How long will you forget me forever? Right, How long will you hide your face from me? How long will I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Have you ever prayed prayers like that, <laughs> that raw, that honest of prayers to God? Uh, if you haven't, you probably haven't walked with God very long in your life. Habakkuk is showing us what it looks like for, for mature people to bring their grievances, their complaints, their heartache, their sorrow to God. And we're, we're taught, we're modeled how to do that. Of course, God is doing something in the situation. Verses 5 through 11, in fact, give us his first answer. It's an oracle of God's judgment. But instead of God sending, as I say, revival, renewal, as Habakkuk is hoping, it's it's a message of judgment. God is sending the Chaldeans to judge God's people for their evil and injustice. The Chaldeans replaced the Assyrians and rapidly became a new world power. So in our series, so far in the timeline, we've talked about the threat of the Assyrians, this really evil, ruthless, brutal empire. Uh, They get conquered by the Chaldeans, which become the Babylonian empire. And then the Babylonians set up shop, and they're maybe not quite as brutal, um, but they're even more powerful, and their empire extends even further And uh, yeah, they're fierce warriors. As you read through the description, 5 through 11, just talks about the incredible military force that they put together, uh, ruling an empire that spanned the ancient Near East. Um, And uh, yeah, verse 11 sums it all up. I love this. A nation whose might is their God, right? They ruled with this incredible, formidable power that was uh, unstoppable, right? Kingdoms, kings, fortresses, they toppled and... Destroyed, And in verse 12, we see Habakkuk's shock here. and I have a beautiful picture here. Uh, if you've ever read to the Bible Project, you know, they do these beautiful illustrations here for not just kids, but for those of us that are adults who really need a visual illustration of, like God, what are you doing? Like uh, knowing all that he does about the character of God, Habakkuk can't believe that he's judging his people by the Babylonians, right? So his confusion, tur- in his confusion, he turns to God. And so as you have that picture there as the backdrop, let me read his response, starting in verse 12. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as judgment, and you, O Lord a Iraq, have established them for reproof. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. Why do you idly look at traitors or remain silent when the wicked swallows up the one more righteous than he. You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. He brings all of them up with a hook. He drags them out with his net. He gathers them in a dragnet. So he rejoices and glad Therefore he he sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet, for by them he lives in luxury and his food is rich. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever back. is like, why he just keep killing people, conquering more and more nations. And so he takes his stand on the wall. So we have our little illustration there. I will take my stand at my watch post, stand myself on the tower, look out to see what will he say to me and how and what I and what I will answer concerning what I will answer concerning my complaint. So Habakkuk has a complaint. God is judging his people, but with people even more wicked and evil than his people. And he is just going, God, what on earth are you doing? Why are you letting these traitors like, continue? Why are you letting the wicked flourish? You know, how are you letting these evil people continue to do what they're doing? Uh, we can learn at least four lessons from this opening chapter, which is really Habakkuk's complaint, his, his lament. First, uh, we need to go to God with our complaints. This is this is crucial. This is you may say this is very obvious, Mike. Thank you for Captain Obvious for telling us that we need to go to God with our complaints. But let's think about this. Right, Habakkuk doesn't go to Marduk, the Babylonian. Ba- um, deity, which would have been what most people were doing that day. Hey, the Babylonians just conquered us, so we're going to go to the Babylonian deity because he's really clearly the more powerful one. He doesn't give up on the gods completely and say, well, clearly the gods don't care about us. No, he takes his problems to God himself. And that is a fundamental lesson for us as Christians when we're struggling, when we're squirming, when we're doubting, when we're disoriented. Are we taking those doubts to God right, or are we walking away from him? Uh, Second, God's ways are often mysterious. That is a very important thing to recognize when you are dealing with God. We can't always tell what he's up to in any given situation. He may even appear strangely absent or strangely silent, and we wonder, what is he doing in the world? I love uh, this quote from uh, John Piper, which you guys hear me quote every now and then, Uh, but he says this. He said, God is always doing 10,000 things in your life, and you may be aware of three of them. Okay, this is an important thing to keep in mind as you look at the mysterious ways God is working in the world, right? God is doing things a little bit beyond your pay grade, your knowledge, your ability to comprehend, and sometimes we just have to trust God's goodness and his kindness in the midst of things that are confusing or otherwise disorienting. Third, God sometimes gives unexpected answers to prayer, Right? Beware. Right? Be careful what you pray for. God might not give you the answer that you are expecting. This is what really threw Habakkuk into a tailspin. Right? For a long time, God doesn't expect to be hearing at all. And then when he does answer, it's even more confusing than the problem. Right? He's praying for revival. God, renew your people. Bring them back to you. Make them a holy people, a people that are passionate about justice and righteousness, that are bringing your glory to the nations. And God's like, no, I'm going to kill them all, or at least a lot of them. And I'm going to bring judgment on them. And so Habakkuk is just fibergasted, right? Have you ever been there? You've prayed to God and you got (laughs) the opposite answer you were expecting. Uh, The doctor, Martin Lloyd-Jones, helpfully observes. He says, we all tend uh, to prescribe the answers to our prayers. Yet it is a fundamental principle in the life and walk of faith that we must always be prepared for the unexpected when we are dealing with God. Let me read that one more time here, and I've got a slide on it too, so guys back there. We all tend to prescribe the answers to our prayers, yet it's a fundamental principle in the life and walk of faith that we must always be prepared for the unexpected when we are dealing with God. That's an important principle, right? As you're thinking about your life and the unanswered prayers that sometimes we deal with. God sometimes gives unexpected answers. Fourth, sometimes He uses strange people to answer our prayers. Sometimes He uses people that aren't even Christians to answer our prayers. Sometimes, and on one particularly memorable occasion, He even used a donkey to answer prayers. And so, when you are thinking about God's answers, to your prayers, be ready for some mystery. Be ready for some prayers that might be different than you expected. Be ready for somebody, maybe who's not even a Christian, to come and maybe bring a word of conviction that you need to hear or a wake-up call for you in your life. God is quite capable of using anybody to continue his work. In chapter 2, Habakkuk finally receives the Lord's response. His answer to Habakkuk's complaint, which is really cool for us. We get to see how God is going to deal with his angry prophet who's wondering, God, what are you doing? And God responds to Habakkuk's complaint by giving him a vision of the uh, Chaldeans' destruction. We're going to see that in verse 2 through 3. And then really a challenge to him about his faith. So let's pick it up here in chapter 2, verse verse 2. And the Lord answered me, Write the vision, make it plain on tablets, so him who may read it, so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Not only will Israel be judged by the Chaldeans, God already has plans for judging the Chaldeans. Habakkuk just has to wait for the appointed time. It will surely come. If it's slow, wait for it. Wait for it. It's going it's to come. And verses 4 and 5 tell us why, right? We see in verse 4 um, of chapter 2, behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him. And we see in verse 5, moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is as wide as shield. Like death, he never has enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects, and, collects all his, <coughs> and collects as his own all peoples. God is well aware the Chaldeans are arrogant. They're wicked. They're intoxicated with power. They are consumed by greed. So in verse 5 through 19, God pronounces five woes against them. Okay, we're going to see five woes kind of being unpacked throughout chapter 2 as God is bringing his judgment, not just against Israel, but now against the Chaldeans as well. So in Habakkuk six, Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own, right? These guys have come and just taken whatever they wanted and brought it back to their palace in Babylon. Habakkuk 2.9, woe to him who gets evil gain for his house, right? Same message, right? Again, they're bringing in all of this gain from the nations, plundering the nations so they can live large in their capital city. Habakkuk 2.12, woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. This is the kind of people the Babylonians were, right? They're building their empire on blood. Just what a, what a vivid image of just injustice and evil and violence, right? That's what they're building their empire. Habakkuk 2.15, woe to him who makes his neighbors drink, right? Not only were these jokers, like, killing people, they're even making them drunk for sport, Like right? I mean, this is the kind of, like, for a spectacle, right? Taking their prisoners and abusing them in the most vile sorts of ways, and then Habakkuk 2.19, woe to him who says to a wooden thing, awake, to a silent stone arise. Right? So there's a woe pronounced for belief in their idolatry, their, their worship of their god, Marduk, who they thought was this invincible god who was the source of their military power and prowess. As surely as judgment is coming on God's people, Habakkuk now learns God's judgment is also going to come on the Babylonians as well. And God's judgment has a purpose. God will eradicate all evil so that his glory will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. That's the the counterpoint in verse 14 to all of this judgment, to these five woes. We have one of the most famous statements on God's glory in the entire Bible, right? God's glory is going to cover the earth as the waters cover cover the sea. What does that even mean, right? God's glory will cover the earth as the waters come and see. Let's start with, with glory, right? Glory is one of those beautiful terms and, uh, and, and John Piper took a shot at, uh, at uh, defining it here. And I've got a quote for you there. He said, God's glory is not easy to define. It's like beauty. How would you define beauty? Some things we have to point at rather than define. But let me try. God's glory is the beauty of his manifold perfections. It can refer to the bright and awesome radiance that sometimes breaks forth in visible manifestations, or it can refer to the infinite moral excellency of his character. In either way, it signifies a reality of infinite greatness and worth, God is saying that His beauty and majesty will cover the earth completely, as the waters cover the sea. Right? None of the violence and bloodshed, none of the corruption and injustice that we see around us—all of that is going to be washed away, right? So that God's glory can finally cover the earth. Perhaps it would be helpful, as uh, Piper said, to point to something as a uh, to get our minds around this. Think of the most famous art museum in the world, uh, the Louvre. I don't know if you have ever been there, but it is a remarkable place, right? Obviously, a center of art and culture, right? It contains more than 380,000 objects and displays 35,000 works of art. I mean, just a massive art gallery, right? In the Louvre, you are surrounded by an overwhelming amount of beauty, and there's no way you can take it all in. I mean, you could be there for a day, you could be there for a week, you could be there for a month, and still not be able to take in all of the beauty that is on display at the Louvre. And Habakkuk is saying that the whole earth will be like a giant art museum displaying God's glory. That's where we're going, right? God is going to judge the nations. He's going to bring his justice to the universe, and God's glory will finally Cover everything. It will display. It'll cover the whole earth as the waters cover. See, that's where we're going, right? That's, that's the, that's the journey we signed up for, right? That's the, that's the happy ending to this story we're in. God's glory finally and completely covering the earth as the waters cover the sea. And the call framing this vision of both judgment and glory is a call to faith, a call to trust God when things don't Make sense. And that's why in verse 4, I skipped over it earlier. You might have noticed, wondered why. Uh, in verse 4, we see, Behold, his soul is puffed up. This is the, the Babylonian emperor. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by faith. The righteous shall live by faith. This summarizes not only how the righteous have always lived since the time of Abraham, right? That great man of faith. Uh, but how God's people respond in the New Testament by faith and how we're to respond today. This passage is quoted actually three times in the New Testament. comes up three times. This is how important this was for the apostles as they thought about what it looked like to be followers of Jesus, to walk with him. And it comes up first in Romans 1, 16 and 17, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, for faith, as it is written, "The righteous shall live by faith." Right? We don't we don't get this power of the gospel we're not just because we're Jewish or because certain they have ethnic identity. We get the power of God at work in our lives. The good news of what Jesus has done, His Holy Spirit at work in our lives by faith, by trusting in God. Second verse here, Galatians 3.11. Now it's evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the law for the righteous shall, be, shall live by faith. Right? We see receive justification not by the works of the law. We're made right with God, not by what we do, but what Jesus has done for us. And we get that righteousness through faith. Finally, Hebrews 10.38-39. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. We persevere in our Christian life, not by sure willpower, not by pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps, but by faith in God, by, by trusting God that his hold on us is stronger than our hold on him, that he's with us, that he's for us. All the things we've already sung about this morning so beautifully in our, in our time of worship and song. So trusting God, taking him at his word is not just an isolated call from an obscure prophet, but a central dynamic in the life of God's people. This is an important reminder to the prophet Habakkuk and anyone else living in uncertain times. Do we live by faith? Do we really trust God with our daily lives? I'm not saying do we believe that God in some kind of an abstract way, but do we actually live like it? You know, do we live by faith? Do our daily decisions reflect the faith that God is actually alive and exists and might actually have something to say about our working lives and our relational lives and our family lives and our, our play and our work and our vacations? Uh, does our, is our long-term planning predicated on faith that God might actually be alive and doing things in the world and so we should plan with that? Does our big-picture strategic planning take faith into consideration who God is and what he's doing in the world. Habakkuk is challenging us, saying the righteous live by faith, especially in uncertain, confusing, disorienting times, right? That's where we need to double down in our trust in God and our faith in God. And this is not, of course, just wish fulfillment. Like, you know, we have lots of faith that God will do all the things that we want. This is faith that is grounded in God's word. This is faith predicated on the promises of God. This is faith uh, oriented towards the kingdom of God and what God wants to do in the world. God's kingdom coming, God's will being done on earth as it is in heaven. Right? This is the challenge that God offers to Habakkuk in chapter 2. Right? In a crazy world, are we a people who live by fear or by faith? That, that is the challenge that God gives to Habakkuk, looking at the chaos that he's seeing in his world. Are we going to be a people, right, characterized by fear or by faith? There's a lot of fear out there right now driving politics. There's a lot of fear out there driving divisions in the church and a lot of the cultural issues right now. Um, So much fear. May it not be among the people of God. Would we be a people of faith, a people recognizing, looking to see what is God going to do in this unique period of time in which we live. Habakkuk was confronted by what looked like an impossible situation. But God's saying, wait for it, wait for it. My justice is coming. My glory is going to be revealed. Trust me, I've got this. So chapter 2 offers God's response to Habakkuk's lament. And finally, in chapter 3, we get Habakkuk's prayer, which has been captured for us. If you're reading along in your Bibles, um, you'll see it's actually um, not just a prayer we see in verse one a prayer of Habakkuk the prophet, but it 's also written out to musical meters so this is, This is a poem that 's become been immortalized as poetry, right as Habakkuk has responded to God, wrestled through it, you also see in the final verse, verse nineteen, to the choir master with stringed instruments, um, Habakkuk has put together a prayer, a reflection, a meditation, a, a poetic reflection of who God is and what he 's done. Um, to be treasured by the people of God, to be studied by the people of God as a response in faith to who God is and what he's done. And and the most primary thing you notice about it, it's a prayer of faith, right? God has just challenged him. Do you you live by faith? The righteous live by faith. And so Habakkuk's prayer is a beautiful expression of faith in action, what faith looks like out in the world. And we see it right here in chapter 3, Verse 2, O Lord, I have heard the report of you, and in your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. Right? Habakkuk's prayer, God, revive your work. Do it again. He's heard all the stories, right? How God defeated the gods of Egypt with the ten flags, and he rehearses these stories in verses 3, all the way down through Through 15. We're going to see him rehearse God, how God defeated the Egyptians, gods with the ten plagues, how God split the Red Sea to deliver his people in the Exodus, how the stun stood still for Joshua in verse 11, and he's saying, God, I've heard of your works. Revive them again, right, lest we die, lest we languish. Knowing they deserve judgment, Habakkuk asks for mercy. And while Habakkuk's prayer in faith is He's also pretty terrified. He's pretty freaked out about all of the things that are going to happen, judgment on God's people, judgment on the Babylonians. Um, He's pretty honest about his reaction to this. He's going to wait quietly for the Lord. He's going to rejoice, whatever happens, but he's terrified. Notice what he says in verse 16. I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters my bone. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. Verse 16 gives us, I think, a very human response to the judgment that's coming. He, he's physically overwhelmed by it. And his body, like he's feeling it in his body. I don't know if you've ever been in a time of deep distress, deep crisis, um, incredible like anxiety, you know that like your body reacts. Like, you might break out in hives. You might get sores in your mouth. You might get ulcers. Like, you know, our bodies keep score of, like, physical trauma and pain in our lives. And, and Habakkuk, he's feeling that. He's, he's wrestling with that. And, I, and just as a pastoral aside, again, I wanted to give you a quote from Martin Lloyd-Jones, which I thought, if you're, if you're in that place and you're dealing with that kind of struggle, I thought this was such a, a word of comfort. He says, it's a great comfort to know that these mighty prophets of God were but men like ourselves and subject to the same frailties as ourselves, God's greatest men of faith often quailed physically at certain prospects which confronted them. To see the truth and understand the doctrines is most important. But despite this, but this, yeah, but despite this clear understanding, we may still tremble physically. To do so under certain terrible conditions does not necessarily mean you have no faith. Though the devil will try to persuade you so, if ever you are so tempted, remember Habakkuk. Habakkuk understood perfectly, yet trembled like a leaf through the sheer weakness of his flesh. Despite the frailty of his body, Habakkuk is ultimately going to respond in rejoicing. And we see this in in one of the most famous texts in the Minor Prophets in verse 17. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off in the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. I, I love that text. Right here, here back, it's like, man, even if the bottom falls out, even if everything falls apart, God is my source of my joy. He is my salvation. I am going to rejoice in Him, it's a remarkable text um, parallel to the words of Job, right? In Job one twenty one, equally famous words: "Naked I came from my mother's womb, naked I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord." And not only does Habakkuk close with rejoicing, but with remarkable confidence and resilience. Notice the last verse in this book. I love it. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on high places. Confronted with the chaos around him and the weakness in our own bodies, we declare that God is our strength. Like the deer in high alpine places and treacherous rocky climbs. Uh, Habakkuk says, man, God is my strength. He's going to make me bound through these rocky crevasses, you know, effortlessly like a deer working his way through the mountain passes. That, that's the kind of hope. Habakkuk wants to leave his readers with. That's the kind of faith I want for my own life, quite frankly. I'm jealous for that kind of faith in my own life. I'm jealous for that for our church, that we would have that kind of faith in our midst and in our lives, that kind of resilience in our families. Now, we know in hindsight that God did fulfill his word. Judah did go into exile in Babylon. Babylon did eventually fall to Persia. The Persians did allow God's people to return the land. They did rebuild the temple. And then God's people prayed for God once again to revive his work, uh, to make it new, make it fresh. And they prayed 400 years all the way until the time of Jesus for God to revive his work as it had fallen more and more into disrepair and ruin And Jesus would revive God's work in unprecedented ways, healing the sick, casting out demons, raising the dead, and at the center of it all, the center of his work on the cross, right, dealing once and for all with our sins, uh, with all of the evil that we have perpetrated on the world, Jesus would take that sin on himself. He'd take the weight of the world's sins on himself, the weight of our sins on himself, our guilt and our shame so that we could walk free as new people, as people of the resurrection. Because Jesus didn't stay dead. He rose again and offers new life to his people, a new kind of way to be human, a new life uh, predicated on his work uh, on the cross, his resurrection. And Jesus, of course, didn't just rise again. He ascended to the right hand of the Father where he is seated right now. He has poured out his spirit on his people so that we could be a part of his kingdom advancing to the nations until that day when God's glory will finally cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. That's the kind of work that we are a part of today. And while we can lament like Habakkuk the brokenness in our lives, And in our world, ultimately, we're called to live by faith in his coming kingdom, to rejoice in the God of our salvation, to find that he is our strength in weakness, and ask him to continue to revive and renew us as a people as we wait for that glory to come and cover the earth. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word from Habakkuk. We thank you that you put it in our Bibles so that as we have complaints to offer, that we have laments to offer, as we, as we squirm and as we suffer and as we deal with sorrow and anxiousness in our hearts, God, you've taught us how to bring it to you, how to bring it to our Heavenly Father who, who loves us and is with us and walks with us through those dark valleys. We, we thank you for the call to faith. The righteous will live by faith. God, help us to be a people that they don't just uh, say, yeah, we believed at one point in our lives, but are people that believe in the present tense, that trust God in the present, everyday realities of our lives, God. Help us to keep our eyes f- fixed on that day when your glory will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. Uh, God, we pray as we walk out of here today, God, we'd walk out of here with a sense, God, that you're with us and you're for us because of Jesus. And we pray it all in his name. Amen.